So I absolutely love Family Month. This is not a gimmick for us. It's not just a campaign for us. Uh, we really, really, part of our DNA is we want to build into families and help families and marriages win. We want you to be successful. And, and this conversation is for every single person because we all have relationships. We all have families, whether you're single or single again or single and don't know it or whether you're married or it's just complicated, or whether you have kids, or you just have a dog that you treat like it's your kid. The stuff that we're talking about in this series, it affects and applies to all of us. Now, I have to be honest right out of the gate um, and just want to ask you to like step into this conversation with me because as much as I love Family Month, there's always a weight to this series for me. Because I, I'm, and I've been a pastor for a long time, but I, I'm at a stage and and. This happens almost on a weekly, but there's hardly a week that goes by that I don't have some conversation with somebody uh, whose family is in a crisis, where their relationships are in a crisis, or they're having crisis with their kids, or something's going on in their extended, they're, 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 almost every single week of my life, I spend time connecting with people, helping them process issues that they're having in their relationships. And so I want to challenge you to commit to being here the next five weeks. And if you absolutely cannot be here for some reason that you would go back and listen to or watch the message online. And I know that that might feel like a giant commitment if you're not in the real, in the habit of really being here on a regular basis, but you know how like you're super invested in that Netflix show that you like binge watched an entire season in like a week and a half, you know, or those like seven different fantasy football leagues that you're in guys, maybe just let a little bit of that investment spill over into your family, spill over into your church and just Take some time to invest some work in your family, in your relationships that are closest to you. Now, um, in anything that you're involved in, whether it's your job, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're a leader of some sort, whether it's your family, um, we all, there's a, there's a difference between working in something and working on it, right? And when you have a family, you are constantly bombarded. You're working in it because there's this logistical stuff that has to happen. You got to make sure the calendar gets done and the groceries get bought and all the, you're just, relationships and families take work. You're working in it. And we don't always take time to step out of the rhythm and the routine of working inside of something to actually work on it to get better at it, to grow closer in our relationships, to become a better parent, to become a better spouse, to become a better brother or sister or a better child. And so take, that's what this series is about. That's what this month is about, is us together taking time to invest some time in our families, in our core relationships. So my kids um, have always loved building Legos. And so I brought, I brought some of their Legos here today. And I actually love building Legos with my kids, but building with them can be pretty st stressful. So um, our, our, our oldest son is 21 and uh, and all four of our kids have been into Legos. And so we have more Legos than I can possibly describe to you. We have an entire room that is just devoted almost exclusively to Legos. We have humongous bins that are just full of Legos. So bins that hold probably about 30 of these. There's two of those. And then there's more besides all that. And so building with them can be kind of stressful because they have all these Legos and they have this picture in their head of what they're trying to build. And they kind of know as they're going along, they kind of know the piece that they're looking for. And the role that I have is to find the piece that they need that they can, so they can keep building. And so they tell me, and I'm supposed to dig around in this massive bin to find the specific 
peace that they're looking for. And if I fail too many times, they come over and they grab the bin and they tip it over and they dump it all out. And so I'm constantly just picking through and, oh, that one's not, no, no, it's got too many dots on it. And they're trying to, I need one with six across and four over. And like, what are you talking about? There's that piece of, you have like two of those and there's a million pieces here. And, and when they dump it out, they go everywhere. And honestly, it's pretty overwhelming, right? It, it, it goes from being difficult to feeling impossible. And, and I think like, that's a picture for how it feels sometimes when we're trying to build our family or how, how we're trying to do family or the puzzle that we're trying to put together to piece together our family. So we kind of have this vague picture of what we're trying to build, right? And, and that picture we've inherited from our family of origin and from culture and just sort of personal ideas that we have. And, and sometimes, you know, sometimes the only picture we have is what we don't want, right? It's what we knew growing up. And we just like, I'm not sure how to do the thing or how to describe the thing that I'm after, but I know what I don't want this family to look like, right? And, and either way, we're not really sure where to begin or how to go about it or even what pieces we need. And it feels like, like this giant pile of just sort of life and relational Lego pieces is just sort of dumped in your lap when you're an adult. And, and some of them are necessary and some of them not. Some of them are helpful and many of them are not. And so you have all of these pieces like, you know, your parents and your spouse and your job and kids and sports and school and siblings and recitals and homework and dishes and practices and pets and vacations and carpools and chores and church and teams and laundry and debt and the house and the lawn and the bills and the gym and family dinners and holidays and weddings and funerals and reunions and graduations and grandparents and retirements and curfew and college and Woo, man, it's a lot, right? And those are just sort of the standard pieces of life. And then we have all the unique pieces that we've been handed from our family that gets mixed up in there, right? Like, and there's some good stuff in there, like love and forgiveness and responsibility and grace and communication and vulnerability and boundaries. But then there's also some hard stuff that's been handed to us, like divorce and abandonment and hurt and dysfunction and manipulation and blame and selfishness and rejection. And you see what I mean? Like it starts getting really complicated and complex and overwhelming really fast. This giant pile of relational Lego pieces. And we're supposed to figure out if and how it all fits together and you're supposed to somehow do all that with no instructions and no pictures. And so we do our best and we kind of cross our fingers and we hope it all turns out. But I'm here to tell you this morning that we can't actually hope our way to healthier families, to healthier relationships. Hope is not a strategy, right? We can, but we can actually learn and get better, which is what Family Month is all about. It's figuring out the picture, what that looks like for you and your family. It's looking at the pieces that you have and the pieces that maybe you're missing, the pieces that you need, and learning how to begin to put those things together, and then bringing God into the conversation overall. And that's the good news this morning, is that no matter who you are, no matter what your relationships are currently like, no matter what season of life you're currently in, that God, that you can actually start building a stronger, healthier family with God's help today. So there's a couple of verses in the Old Testament that I come back to over and over again when it comes to family. And they're found in Proverbs chapter 24. And it says this, it says a house or a home, he's not talking about a physical house, a house or a home or a family is built by wisdom and becomes strong through understanding. Through knowledge, its rooms are filled with all sorts of precious riches 
and valuables. The wise are mightier than the strong, and those with knowledge grow stronger and stronger. That, that is a great picture, right? Because that's what we all want. We want a strong family that can make it through anything and everything that life throws at it, right? We, we want a home that's filled with rich, life-giving, beautiful relationships and, and people that value and respect and love one another. But, but notice what he says about healthy relationships, about healthy families. He says they don't happen by accident, right? They're, they're built intentionally. And so while they don't all have the same shape and size and makeup, strong families are all built by both wisdom and understanding. And then he says something really kind of curious. He says that the wise are mightier than the strong. And I think part of it is he's going, look, it, it, it's, not, it's not enough just to try hard. Right? It's not just about exerting effort. You got to have that, right? And we hear that all the time, that relationships are work. And it is true, right? But, he, but he's going, but strong families aren't built by hard work and effort alone. They're built from work and wisdom. They're made strong and healthy when work actually meets with wisdom. So it'd be like if I... if. You came to me and you're like, look, I, I need you to build me a house. And I'd be like, awesome, I got this. And I would, I would go out and I would work hard and, and I would, could probably get, I don't know, maybe at least half of the supplies that would be needed. And I can, but I can't build anything. But I'm telling you, I would go out and I would give it my best. I would work hard. I would be intentional about it. I would try my hardest to build you a house. But it wouldn't matter. You still wouldn't want to live in it when I was done. You need both work and wisdom, right? The truth is we don't just need to work a little bit harder or do things a little bit better on the things that we've been doing. Sometimes we need to shift to a new strategy, the wisdom to try different things, to move, to grow to a different place altogether. Because every system, and maybe you've heard this, every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it gets, Right? So your relationship is a system. Your marriage is a system. The way you parent is a system. The way your home and your family operates is a system. And so whatever results you're getting, it's because the system that you have in place is perfectly designed to get those results. And, it's, and you, can work as hard, you can keep working harder and harder and harder at that same system and you'll get those same results. You'll just get more of them. And it's simple, but it's true. It's true in life and leadership. It's true in our families. And if you look around our culture and you just were evaluating the results or the, the kind of the, the current state of relationships and families in our culture, I would say the results we're getting aren't great. And so if we want different results, it might be time to try a different system. Well, what does that actually look like? And where do we even begin? I mean, what, what is family even for? What's it supposed to be about? Well, in our culture, I, I think we don't say this part out loud, but I, I think one of the just sort of truisms is that in our culture, the primary function of family is to serve as a launching pad for the individuals in that family. Right? The family exists to put each member of the family in the best position possible to go out and be successful as individuals, which doesn't sound that bad. That actually sounds, that kind of makes sense to us. 
The problem is the natural conclusion of if that is the whole sole reason our family exists, the natural conclusion of that idea is that me, the individual, is greater than we, the family. And so you have all these people who are part of a family who are coming to that family unit going, I'm more important than what goes on here. And we don't say it out loud, right? Because we, we don't even think that way. But that's the way we start to behave in our relationships. And man, that whole me is greater than we. We've been on that track a long time because you see it everywhere, right? It permeates our culture. It permeates our parenting and our families, right? It, it, it starts with kids who are elevated above everything else and everyone else. And the only problem is that when that happens, the kids grow up as the center of the family where everything and everyone revolves around them. And so you know what happens? They eventually become adults who believe that they're the center of the universe and that everything and everyone revolves around them. And that has a predictable outcome. It's not healthy. See, I think for a lot of us, for a lot of people, home and family, it's just the place that we kind of go back to. It's a safe place, but it's the place we go back to sort of temporarily recharge before we head back out into the world and all the stuff that really matters. But what if we, what if we, got, it, what if we got it all backwards? What if, the, what if family itself, not the individuals in it, but the family itself, what if that were meant to be the focus of the activity and the family, the economic and the physical and the spiritual and the relational activity of the people in the family. See, me, the individual matters. Me, the individual is important. But what if, what if a family is actually supposed to look more like a team? Now, I know a lot of us say that our families are teams, but here's the thing. If you've ever been on a team, you know this. That we, the team, is greater than, more important than, any single me or individual on that team. The individuals matter. The team, the, the players matter. But the goals and the team and the mission and what they're about trump the talent, the needs, the attitudes, the desires of any one individual of that team. Now, I know this is foreign to us, maybe a little bit to think about our families in this way, but if you go all the way back to the beginning when God wanted to start the story of us and him and clearly, he clearly gave us a purpose and a mission, he didn't create, he didn't make an individual. He didn't start a nonprofit. He didn't create a board of directors. He made a team. More specifically, he made a family. And we get this idea when it comes to sports dynasties and businesses and success, right? We know that they don't win or succeed because of a single individual, but because they're a strong team. I mean, the individuals matter. They're important. They're an important part. But the team and its mission comes first. What if it's supposed to be that way with your home and your family too? See, God loves you. He loves us as individuals, but God has always been a God of relationships and family. In fact, he always frames our individual identity within the context of family, even in the way he talks about himself. In the Old Testament, he shows up and he begins to call himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He could introduce himself in any way he wants, but he chooses to identify himself with people. And they're not just three random dudes, three unconnected guys that he just drew out of a hat, Larry, Moe, and Curly. He doesn't just 
you know, pick people randomly. He chooses a family because Abraham was Isaac's daddy, Jacob's granddaddy. And so he shows up and he says, I'm the God of the family. Later, Jacob changes his name to Israel and God says his descendants will be the children of God. In the New Testament, Jesus is called the son of God. After Jesus comes the church and it's called the family of God. And God invites us into his family and he adopts us as his sons and his daughters. The whole of scripture is framed around this idea of individual identity in the context of family. One of my favorite verses in the whole, the whole of scriptures is found in Psalm chapter 68. And Psalm 68 is a song that's written by a guy named David and it's filled with all this truth describing who God is and what he's done. And David talks about how powerful and overwhelming God can be. But then David says, but you wanna know who God is? You wanna, you wanna really get a sense of what he's like? He, he says he's a father to the father this, that he's a defender of the widows or people that can't defend or stand up for themselves, that he sets prisoners free and he gives them joy. And then he writes this beautiful phrase in Psalm 68, verse six. He says, God places the lonely in families, not just around people, in families, not in classrooms or schools, not on boards or in clubs or organizations, that he places people, you and I, he places the lonely in families, which I actually think is really instructive and helps us kind of understand the purpose and the definition of family. And so here's sort of my definition that we're gonna be working from throughout this whole series, that a family is a perfect God working out his perfect love for all people in and through a group of imperfect people. It's individuals who are unified by love and a commitment to mutually serve and sacrifice for and support each person in pursuit, not of what's best for an individual, but what's best for them all. Now, this framing that the scriptures does for us, it's not incidental. It's not just here and there. It's not just a little fun fact. It's the entire language and framework of the scriptures from the beginning to the end. And it's that of family. And this is important because if we don't understand the context from which the scriptures are speaking about family, we won't actually understand the conclusions that it makes about family. One of the things I love when I read the Bible, and you, you'll notice when you begin reading the Bible, is there's not a single example of a perfect family anywhere in the Bible. There's all kinds of stories about broken families and blended families and mixed families and adopted families and even accidental families, but there's no perfect ones. In fact, even the ones that get it right, they do so after a lot of trial and error. They do so eventually. They don't start out that way. And that's because family is just complicated and doing it well is really, really hard. It's difficult. But there's this really compelling story that involves a particular family in the Old Testament. And, um, and I, this story is really compelling in a lot of ways, but one of the reasons I like it is because when I read it, it makes me feel better about how messed up my family is because this family's pretty messed up. And hopefully as we go along, you'll start to feel that way too. Like, whew, at least I didn't do that. All right, so in Genesis chapter 37, beginning with verse two, it says this. A minute ago, I talked about Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob changed his name as Israel. This was before all, you know, this is how all that's unfolding. So this, in Genesis 37, this is the account of Jacob 
and his family. It says, when Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flocks. Joseph was uh, Jacob's son. And he worked for his half-brothers. And also, he reported to his father some of the bad things that his brothers were doing. All right, so we're already off to a great start. Okay? <laughs> little sibling rivalry, little hatred, little tattletale, little guys that are away from their dad doing stuff they're not supposed to do, and then one of them's ratting them out. That's just a mixture for all kinds of good stuff, right? Verse 3. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children. All right, now we're taking it up a notch. And his reasoning is really profound, though. It's because he had him born to him in his old age. You're my favorite because I had you last. Like, thanks, Dad. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph. And you know, Joseph was like, it's going to be a brand new chariot. It's a new chariot, new chariot, new chariot. Nope, it's a beautiful robe. Have you ever been like anticipating an awesome gift and then you got clothes? You remember that? Like when you were a kid and you're just like, oh, it's a robe. Yay. Look, try it on. All right. It's a robe. Yeah, remember I told you how I wanted a chariot, Dad? Verse 4 says, but his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. Okay, so we're only a couple of verses in. And one thing we know about this family is that they're not all that different from our family. They're completely dysfunctional. There's drama. There's jealousy. They talk crazy to each other. They need a therapist, y'all. They need a licensed marriage and family therapist. They need to take the whole family, sit them down, and start working through some stuff. The story goes on. Genesis chapter 37, verse 5. It says, one night Joseph had a dream and when he told his brothers about it, they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way that he talked about them. So Joseph starts having these dreams and these dreams are not just any dreams, they're very specific. And in his dreams, Joseph, who's the youngest, for somehow Joseph rises above the rest of his family. That's basically the essence of his dreams. And he starts telling his brothers and they're not too thrilled about that. And so they hate, they already hate him because he's a tattletale. They already hate him more because he's dad's favorite. And now he's telling them about how not only am I dad's favorite, I'm going to rule over all of y'all. So soon Joseph had another dream. This time he told the dream to his father as well as to his brothers, but his father even got in on the action and scolded him. So Joseph has dreams. And he thinks that they're about transcending and rising above his family, which naturally makes his brothers hate him more and even irritates his dad, which is surprising because he is the golden child. Now, at this point, the story to me is already getting a little bit emotionally confusing because in general, we tend to resonate with Joseph a little more, right? He's a guy with big plans and big dreams whose crazy dysfunctional families kind of standing in his way between him and becoming this thing that he's dreaming about becoming. But then we also are like, Joseph, I mean, come on, don't be a little jerk face about it. The other thing that makes it confusing is we tend to see everything, especially in our culture, as binary, right? We tend to see it through the lens of good guys and bad guys. And so we read this story, we're like, who's the good guy? Who's the good guy? That's why I'm going to be. Who are the bad guys? Who are the bad? I'm not going to be those guys, right? But this story isn't about good guys and bad guys. It's just about guys. It's about a, mess, a messy family. It's about messy people. And the truth is, is your family, 
Right? Your family story is not about good guys and bad guys. It's just about guys. And some of those people did some good stuff and some of them did some bad stuff. But we're all capable of any of the stuff, right? It, your story is, the story of your family is just a story of messy people and a messy family. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not work to do. That doesn't mean that there's not boundaries you can draw. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means that there's no villain as much as we want to make somebody a villain for most of us. So Joseph's brother, Joseph brothers, they, they spent a little too much time binge watching true crime shows. I know who you guys are. I've, I've have some friends that do that. So they do what any of us would do when we're mad at our brother. They hatch a plot to murder him, all right? And eventually they decide, you know what? That's a little more hassle than it's worth. Not because it's bad, but guys, I mean, murder, there's the cover up. Like what do yeah, it could just get messy. Let's not do that. Instead, let's sell him into a life of slavery, which they do. And then they lie to their dad and say he was attacked and killed by an animal. Now, we don't have time for all the horrible things that happened to Joseph as a result of him being sold into slavery, but the story is amazing. So I'm just gonna give you the highlights and then in a minute we're gonna skip to the end because that's where the payoff is. So after he's sold by his brothers, he ends up as a slave in Egypt in the house of a guy named Potiphar. And Potiphar is an Egyptian officer in the ruling class in Egypt. And so Joseph starts doing really, really well. And so Potiphar elevates him to a position of authority. But in Genesis chapter 39, Potiphar's wife starts spending all of her time kind of checking out Joseph's hot bod and the new, you know, rock hard abs that he's got and his buns of steel because he's out there working in the sun, making it happen, holding it down. And she wants to go all 50 shades of gray with him, you know. And so one day she makes her move and tries to seduce him, but he refuses her, gives her the stiff arm, the Heisman, you know, like he's like, nope. But hell hath no fury, right? And so she falsely accuses him of sexual assault and he's sent to prison. And while I haven't personally been to prison, I've heard there's a lot of downtime, a lot of time to think about your life and what got you there, which had to be brutal for Joseph. All that time to just sit, sit and think about not only what had been done to him by Potiphar's wife, but also by his family. Because it doesn't take... It, it, it doesn't take trying very hard to go, yeah, she accused me falsely and that's what put me here, but I wouldn't have even been in that situation if it wasn't for my jerk-faced brothers who sold me into slavery, right? So it immediately is all gonna stem back to the mess of his family. I can just see Joseph sitting alone in his cell in the dark thinking like, I can't believe they did this to me. Like they, they never got me. Even when I told them my dreams, right? They never liked me. I bet, I bet they've all just sort of moved on with their lives. I wonder if they even still think about me. I wonder if they feel guilty at all. I hope they feel guilty. I hope they can't freaking sleep at night. I'll probably never see them again. I hope I never see them again. I kind of want to see them again. I, I don't get it. Thinking about them makes me so angry, but they're my family. I don't want to be associated with or connected to them in any way. I don't even want to think about them anymore, but I can't get them out of my head they're my family. Have you ever felt like that? Like, why do we care so much? Why do we need their approval? Why do we want them to want us so badly? Why do we even care what they think? Why do we still feel weirdly connected to them even when it seems like they don't care about us? Well, because you and I were fundamentally designed to function in families. Remember, that's the whole framework. 
that God frames our individual identity always in the context of a family, which is why you know people who've done all sorts of crazy and destructive things just to be loved and just to belong. My wife and I, we have four adopted kids. Our two oldest, 21, 19, they were adopted from birth. We were at the hospital when they were born. We have a 12-year-old Kai who went to, we went to China. He was three years old when we got him. And our seven-year-old we got when he was six months old. So we've, we've been around adoption in a whole, different, a whole bunch of different scenarios. One of the things that's really interesting, and you maybe have heard this, maybe you've experienced this, maybe you just know this, is that when adoptive kids, when, when they don't know their story, when they don't know their origin story, when they don't have the information about their birth parents, the thing that surfaces to their life, the driving, nagging question in their life is, I don't know who I am. See, they talk about the information, finding out who their birth parents are and some of the story, but it's not the information they're after. They're trying to answer the question, who am I? I mean, isn't that interesting? See, regardless of what you accomplish or what you do with your life, without a healthy family, we become confused about the details of our own identity, which we really hate in our culture, right? We don't want to believe that, right? We want to believe that I don't need anybody. I'm self-sufficient. I'm a one-man wolf pack, baby. Like, I don't need, like, I want people in my life, but I don't need you. Like, we think that that is the epitome in our culture is to work ourselves to a place where we don't need anybody. And honestly, that's not what God wants for you. Right? We want to believe that our identity comes from achievement, that we find out who we are by demonstrating what we can do. But that's never, ever been true. Not with me, not with you, not with Joseph. And so his story just keeps getting crazier and crazier. And one of the more improbable turn of events, Joseph goes from being imprisoned as a slave to being the ruler in Egypt. And the only person he answers to is Pharaoh himself. I mean, talk about a success story. And so Joseph starts a family of his own. He's on top, baby. Years go by. He thinks he's finally put his family and all that drama and everything they did to him in his rearview mirror. But that's not how life works, right? And so there's a famine. And so Joseph's brothers come from where they're living. They come to Egypt, which is the only world superpower at the time. They come looking for help and for food. And that's the way it happens with us, right? Is one day we think we're over it and then the past shows up on our doorstep and we're just like, oh God. So in Genesis 42, they end up before Joseph, only they don't recognize him. They don't know it's him. He knows, he recognizes them immediately, but they don't know it's him. And so Joseph is triggered, man. I mean, he's just beside himself to say the least. And up to this point, when you read the whole story, all kinds of bad things happen to him, but he always just seemed confident and rational and emotionally in control. But now his brothers show up and he is a mess and he loses his mind. He's yelling at him one minute. He's crying. He's got to kick everybody out of the room because he can't, he has got to sob uncontrollably for a minute 
he feeds them and is nice to them one minute and then he like plays tricks on them and like throws them in jail the next minute. He's mad and then he feels bad. He loves them and then he hates them. Like, have you ever been there? Like no one can make you act crazy like family can make you act crazy, right? And that's because we are far more relational than we are rational, right? You think you're all rational and then your mom shows up. You think you're all rational, then that, that brother shows up or that uncle or your kid or whatever. Like you think you're rational till that person in your family that drives you crazy shows up and then you're not so rational. And so for Joseph, after a long process, he makes the big reveal to his brothers and they are blown away and they are terrified and rightfully so because now he holds all the cards and Joseph says, how you like me now? And he totally flexes on them and he has them tortured and thrown in prison. No, he doesn't do any of that. That's what I would do. But that's not what Joseph does. Joseph has a different perspective. Listen to what he says to, a, to his brothers about some, kind of summarizing everything that's happening. It's very telling in Genesis 45, verse five, it says this, but don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives, our family. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and our family and to preserve many survivors, right? It doesn't go with the, you ruined my life. You sold me into slavery, which that would be true. Right? He doesn't even go with, my dreams came true, suckers. I told you I was going to be above you. Now I am. Look who won. He, I, I grew up in church. I grew up reading the Bible. I've heard this story and read it. I mean, more times than I, I, I can't even keep, I've lost count. And I've always thought about this story as being a story about Joseph. But Based on what Joseph just said, Joseph himself doesn't think that this story is about Joseph. See, this story isn't about the triumph and success of an individual, Joseph. Joseph said, no, this story is about the triumph and the healing of the family of Jacob, which is two very different things. And Joseph recognizes that, hey, without me, the family doesn't win, right? Without me and the part that I played in this, like, I, I matter to the story, but I'm not the point of the story. And Joseph, he, he's not downplaying or minimizing what they did to him. He's got a lot of, clearly, he's got, with everything that happened to him, he's got a lot of personal work to do. He's got to choose some forgiveness, which he does. But he begins to recognize that something bigger than him was going on, that there was a we that was way bigger and more important and greater than his little old me, even though he was the second most powerful man in the world. And because he had that perspective, God just didn't heal him. He healed and restored his whole entire family. Now, look, there are no happily ever afters, even in the Bible. There's no magic formulas there's no silver bullets. The point of this story isn't that if you choose to begin to shift how you look at your family and you choose to trust God and bring it, is that everything, it just gets magically healed. That's not the point of the story. But there are fresh starts. There are new beginnings. There is healing available. 
That's the good news is that no matter where you are, no matter what you've been like, no matter what happened to you, no matter what your family's like, they may have tried to kill you and just settled for, you know, selling you into slavery. You probably, you probably, whatever happened to you is probably a little bit less than that. If God can do that in this family, he can do something in your family. No matter what it's like, you can actually begin to build your family into the healthy place that God designed it to be. And honestly, if things are good for you and your family and that, and that your family's awesome and it's going strong, that's great. Let me just tell you, like, you don't actually have to wait until your family is shipwrecked or until you're in crisis to begin to shift how you're doing your family to begin to shift the system, right? Because at the end, in the end, all of us have the opportunity, like Joseph, to change the story of how our family is going to move forward together. The question is, Will you do the work? Will you grab onto the wisdom and bring them together? And how do we get there from here, right? How do we get there, like from where we are to the healthy place that God wants us to be in our family? Well, earlier we talked about how building strong family takes worth, takes both work and wisdom. I wonder for you and your relationships, thinking about your family right now, which one do you need more in your family? Do you, do you have the, the self-awareness to go, yeah, man, I've just kind of been mailing it in in my relationships. And that's probably why they've been suffering. Like I, I do need to step in, to lean in, to do a little bit more work. Or maybe you're like, man, we are working as hard as we can to love each other and to build our family and we just can't make any headway. We need some wisdom. So what's the dynamic for you right now? Is it healthy? What's the, the big we in your family that's being prioritized above the, the smaller individual me right now in your life? Because your family is about more than just the individuals that are in it. Now, I know in this conversation, there are lots of lingering questions there's lots of implications from a whole bunch of things I said today with just a little bit that I got into. There's so many things for us to kind of dive deeper into and unpack together. And that is why this is a five-week series because we couldn't say it all in one week. That is why I wanna encourage you to being here all month long. Finally, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, John wrote these words. See how very much our Father, speaking of God, loves us. For he calls us his children, and it's not just a name he gave us. That is what we are. See, you have a wonderful perfect, loving, heavenly father who has invited you into his family, who loves you perfectly, who knows you better than you know yourself. And I, I wonder how much more secure you would be, how much more you could move down this road in your family 
if you truly understood and embraced the fact that you are a child of God, that you have a heavenly father who loves you. Would you pray with me this morning? Let's pray together.